We'll be looking this morning at 1 Samuel 21 and the first five verses of chapter 22. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread at hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. 
and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, Lord, we ask that you would reach us with this, your word. Lord, you have preserved it for your purpose, for your purpose in revealing yourself and in speaking to us of our duty to you. Please use it this morning to benefit and bless your people. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There is a great irony in our lives when we are desperate. It seems that when we are at our most desperate, then we are least likely to look to God. When we are at our most desperate, our eyes are focused upon our circumstances, on all of the problems that surround us. And then secondarily, upon our own endeavors of what we can do to get out of the predicament. This takes all of our focus. But in reality, when we are at our most desperate is when we most need the Lord. And so this morning, the story of David helps us to see what we ought to do in our own desperation as we see David's desperation and how the Lord provides, protects, and preserves him. It is a blessing to us to see that God will never abandon us, even in our most desperate straits. And so this morning in this text, I would like us to see three things about our Lord. First, we see God's provision, specifically His provision for David. Secondly, we see God's protection of David. And then third, we see God's providence at work both at this time and long in the past. His providence to benefit David. Let's begin then by looking at God's provision for David. For David is in fact in trouble. He is on the run from Saul. And this is a significant part of David's life. As a matter of fact, about one third of the book of 1 Samuel will be occupied with David on the run from Saul. So on some level we need to get used to this because we're going to see a lot of it. But we have to also remember that this is David's life, day upon day, month upon month, year upon year. Trouble is before him. Saul has been showing himself to be relentless in his attacks upon David. He has used many avenues to come after David. But there's actually more than just trouble going on for David. Because we also recall that David doesn't know why Saul is after him. He has no idea how to resolve this problem because he doesn't know how he can fix it, how he can approach Saul. The one thing that he does know for certain is that Saul will not give up. We saw that last week in chapter 20, how Saul could not even be talked out of his course by his son, Jonathan. So now David has nowhere to turn. 
Again, he's in more than trouble. He can't go home to his wife, Michal, because death waits for him there. He can't stay with Samuel because we know from the text that Samuel can't even protect him. He had to flee from Samuel. And even his best friend, Jonathan, the crown prince, cannot help him anymore. They have parted with tears. So David has really nowhere to turn. We've moved from trouble to desperation. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt that alone? Like no one could understand the problems that you're going through. That no one could possibly help you. That no one could come to your aid. If you have, then we can learn from David in the events of this text. What David does is he heads to Nob. Now, Nob was a city that was just a few miles south of Saul's home in Gibeah and just a few miles north of Jerusalem, or what would become Jerusalem. So, just as you're picturing in your mind's eye the map of Israel, David goes just a little bit south from where Saul is. Now, we might wonder, why does David not flee far away? Why does he go to Nob? And that's because Nob, at this time, had become the priestly city. Shiloh, the former site of where the priests were and the sacrifice were taken and where Israel came to worship, had been destroyed. It had been destroyed by the Philistines sometime after their seizing the ark. We don't know all of the details, but we do know from the scriptures that Shiloh was destroyed as a part of the judgment on the priesthood and the family of Eli. Our Lord recounts this several times in the book of Jeremiah, saying to Israel, I will do to you as I have done to Shiloh. So Shiloh has been wiped out, and now the priests are established at Nob. So David comes to Nob, and there is a man by the name of Ahimelech who comes to greet him. Now Ahimelech is the great-grandson of Eli. Eli's family at this point are still priests in Israel. That judgment has not yet come to pass. We'll see about that in the future. But he is also the brother of Ahijah who has become Saul's spiritual confidant. After Samuel abandoned Saul, after he pronounced the Lord's judgment upon him, Saul took to himself Ahijah, one of the broken priestly family you may remember. So Ahimelech is the chief priest at Nob. And we can imagine that David goes there, perhaps first to inquire of the Lord, what should I do? But he also has more practical concerns. And so, as David comes into Nob, he knows he can't just go and meet any Tom, Dick, or Harry. He's got to stay incognito as much as possible. So he goes to Ahimelech, and we see a tension in the air. You can imagine on David's end, he doesn't know if he can trust Ahimelech. He is, after all, the brother to Saul's spiritual confidant. He is one of the powers and authorities in Israel. He might feel beholden to Saul. So it's not like David can walk in and say, I'm running away from Saul. He's trying to kill me. Can you help me? But there's something else that's curious here. 
Ahimelech comes to David, we read in verse 1, trembling. Now, we have seen this word before several times in this book. And in each instance, it encapsulates a type of fear that grips a man so that he's unable to act properly. We might think of it as if you were talking to someone and their hands were shaking and they couldn't stop from shaking. They're so afraid. They don't know what's going to happen. Now, why is Ahimelech afraid of David? Our first clue is the question that Ahimelech asks. Why are you by yourself? (laughs) Aren't you one of the main commanders of the king? Shouldn't you have servants all around you? Shouldn't there at least be a bodyguard? Aren't you the captain of Saul's bodyguard? Why are you here all by yourself? Now, you could just imagine Ahimelech's mind is racing. Maybe something's happened to Saul and David's on the run. Maybe something's happened to David. Maybe there's a problem in Israel. And Ahimelech, the last thing he wants is trouble at his doorstep. He knows from trouble from his family history. And so David then begins to tell him a story. Now, we cannot sugarcoat this. David completely fabricates a story and lies to Ahimelech. Now, one of the things we have to understand about the Bible is that one of the things that teaches us that the Bible is true is that it does not refuse to deal with truths. In other words, it doesn't seek to pick up its heroes and make them seem to be perfect in every way. As a matter of fact, the greatest heroes in the Bible, we see their great sins. Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon. And here, the Bible simply records for us what David is doing. Now, we also have to remember that everything that is recorded in the Bible is not recorded as something we are to do. The Bible is not saying to us here, when you're in trouble, go ahead and lie like David. As a matter of fact, because of the outcome, the opposite would be true. Well, David makes up this completely fabricated story, and he says, Saul has sent me on a secret mission. Now, on one level, as he begins, this is the perfect cover story. I'm on a secret mission from Saul, so so don't ask me any questions about anything because it's secret. And you could just imagine Ahimelech would say, but shh, secret. But what about shh, secret? Okay, all right. You can see that cuts off a lot of questions. You don't have to have details. And we all know that the more you lie, the more details you lie about, the more you are to be caught in a lie. So David cuts all of that off. It seems perfect until we realize there's another aspect to the story. He says, I'm on a secret mission for Saul, except I don't have any weapons. Oh, and by the way, I forgot my lunch too. I don't have any food. Now, this does not sound like a very good mission. If your captain of your mission is sent out and he doesn't have any weapons and he doesn't even have any food, we could just imagine Ahimelech's mind racing. And the only thing stopping him, I think, from calling David out here is the secret nature. Ahimelech's probably concerned that if he presses too much, he'll get in trouble with Saul. And we all know one thing, you don't want to be in trouble with Saul. So he holds his tongue. It seems like a flimsy story that David is telling. But there's another thing that David is doing here by his lying. He is putting Ahimelech in the crosshairs 
of Saul. You'll have to wait a little bit for it. But we're going to see this come to fruit next week. David, by lying to Ahimelech, has put Ahimelech in danger. David has clearly done the wrong thing. And we get a glimpse of this in verse 7. Now, if you can imagine in your mind's eye, if this were a film, as David is telling the story, there would be a darkened corner. And the music would change. And a light would come, and we would see Doeg. Now, if Doeg was a 1920s or 1930s villain, we'd see him with a big mustache twirling it. In today's modern era, maybe he's, he's playing with marbles or tapping his pencil or doing something, looking ominously, curling his lip. We know he's up to no good. We don't know what will happen yet. But something bad's going to happen. Now, why does David do all this? Why does he start with this deceptive action? I think on some level, maybe he thinks he's doing Ahimelech a favor. He might rationalize it to himself. If Ahimelech doesn't know what's going on, he can't lie to Saul. If Saul comes back, all he can say is, David came, told me he was on a secret mission, quiet the whole nine yards, asked for some food, I gave him some bread. Maybe David thinks he's helping Ahimelech. We're going to see that's not the case. Or maybe I think it's even more likely that he's just at the end of his rope and David panics. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had an occasion in which you're in really desperate straits? When you don't know what you're going to do. And then you look back on what you've done and you say, Wow, that was not very good. I shouldn't have done that. Panic takes over. Fear is gripping David. Now, instead of trusting God, as he'd done in the past, now he's relying on his own skill and planning. Remember who David is. This is the same man who years before went in front of Goliath when no one else would and said, I trust the Lord. I will vindicate the Lord and his name. And he fought Goliath. Now here, he is so afraid, he doesn't think of God at all. The truth is, hard times can do this for us. We don't think straight. We see no way out, and we don't even think about God. This is the reality of our lives and our experience. But what happens? Remarkably... Ahimelech agrees to help David. And what we see is God's quiet provision for David in the midst of this. Now, we don't know exactly why Ahimelech believes David. But what he does is he agrees to give David food. He says, well, there's parameters here. The only bread I have is what's called the bread of the presence. Now, if you want to understand more about the bread of the presence, you can read Leviticus 21 this afternoon. And basically what happens is that 12 loaves, 12 large loaves, were baked each Sabbath and placed before the holy place. And they were to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then each Sabbath, a new 12 loaves would be baked and the hot loaves would be placed again in the presence and the old loaves would be taken and eaten, but only by the priests. 
And so this is all the food that Ahimelech has. And so we might wonder, why does Ahimelech let David eat this bread? The Bible says that only priests are to eat it. That's the law of God. I think what we see here is an example that's instructive for us. And that is that Ahimelech sees that the law of God has as its fulfillment mercy. That's why our Lord Jesus Christ, when speaking to the Pharisees, cites this text. He says, haven't you read about how when David came before the priests, he was given the bread of the presence? You see, the law of God is not to be set against mercy. It is to be fulfilled in mercy. This is why on the Lord's Day, when we are to cease from work, several of us, many of us, work hard that we might have fellowship with one another. It's why we work hard to bless others and to provide for others. Because the fulfillment of the law is mercy. Well, David then after he gets the food, begins to ask about a weapon. Now, he may have known that Goliath's sword was kept here. After all, he was the one who seized it. And he's given the sword of Goliath. Now, this will figure in a little bit later in our story. But what does this incident tell us? It tells us that David is desperate, that David has no allies and no friends, that he doesn't even have food to eat, and on top of all of this, he is in the wrong. He is found here lying. What does it tell us? It tells us that God provides for his people in marvelous ways. Now, not necessarily in remarkable ways, God provides for David by giving him Bread, we might even say his daily bread. That David had prayed for his daily bread and God provides it. But isn't it remarkable that God provides it to David in this circumstance? David, of course, is lying. He's not worthy of God's provision. We want to stand here and say, no, God, wait till David cleans up his act. He doesn't deserve any food. He needs to tell the truth. But the truth is that God doesn't provide because we obey. God provides because he is gracious. Let me say this to you. If God required worth for his provision, we would all starve. For none of us are worthy of the grace of God. And what this incident tells us is is that God gives his provision to those who are in the wrong, to those who do not deserve it, who are not worthy. And also notice that in the midst of David's huge problem, God is reminding him that he is still with him, that he has not abandoned him, even in the small way of the provision of bread. Well, the next thing that happens is really remarkable. We see it in verses 10 and following. David rises and flees from Nob, and he goes to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, we understand here that David is really desperate, right? And we know that desperation makes us do crazy things, right? But can you think of anything crazier than what David does here? He flees to a king of the Philistines. 
And somehow he thinks he's going to be incognito. Remember, David is the commander of the army. We've read over and over again how David strikes the Philistines and how they flee because he does such damage to them. And we're aware that what happens is, is that as soon as David gets in the town, he's probably not there but a few minutes, that the servants of the king are reminded of that great top 40s hit. David and his ten thousands. And they say, isn't this the guy to kill the ten thousands? The ten thousands of us? Who is this guy? Now this is foolish beyond belief. And people will do desperate things. I'm reminded of a story back in what seems like a previous life when I was in law school and was working for the United States Attorney's Office. I was working with the FBI on various cases and helping them, and they would tell me various stories of what criminals would do. And I became very calmed by the fact that, in the main, criminals are dumb. And that's why they don't rob us blind all the time, because they're, they're not very hardworking, they're not very smart. And one particular story that the FBI told me was of a man who went in and robbed a bank. There was only one problem. It was the branch of the bank that he visited regularly. And so he went in and said, give me all your money. And the teller handed it over. And the police came and they said, you've been robbed. Do you know who robbed you? And they said, oh, yeah, it was Joe. And they said, do you know where we can find him? Sure, here, we'll give you his address off of his bank statement. There you go, go find him. And, and this is sort of the craziness that David is doing. He goes in to the king of the Philistines. And now wait for it. What? kind of place is Gath? Do you remember where we've heard that name before? Does it sound familiar? It's Goliath's hometown. So David goes into Goliath's hometown, catch it, wearing Goliath's sword. And the last time they saw Goliath's sword, David was using it to cut Goliath's head off. Could you imagine how foolish this is? And this tells us something about David's desperation. He has completely ceased to think reasonably. He goes to a place that's actually more dangerous than the side of Saul. As one commentator puts it this way, when the king of the Philistines is my best hope, I am in real trouble. Now, David quickly realizes his folly The text tells us that David hears their words as they recount the song, and he is very afraid, much afraid. Now, one thing you need to understand is that in all of 1 and 2 Samuel, this is the place that David is said to be much afraid. He doesn't fear Goliath. He doesn't fear running from Saul in the same way. He doesn't fear even running from his son, Absalom, in the same way. Here he is very afraid because he has been focused on himself and his planning and God is far from him and fear is gripping his heart. This is a lesson for us that when times get hard, the more we focus on ourselves, the more we will be gripped by fear and be incapacitated and do foolish things. The solution is not to try to be smarter. The solution is to look to the Lord, who will calm our heart and focus our minds. So David is quickly placed under arrest. The text tells us that he is in their hands, the hands of the Philistines. 
and he is greatly afraid. What will happen to David now? I don't like David's odds. Do you? Well, what happens here, there's no cliffhanger for us. I won't tell you to come back next week and find out about David and Gath. No, David then begins to proceed with a new plan. He says, I'll make myself seem crazy. Now, why would he do this? I think, first of all, he's playing into the reality of the situation. Because only a crazy man would come into Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword. That's crazy. And I think also... He wants to count on the fact that this will make him seem like he is not a threat to the Philistines. And it works. The king says to his servants, by the way, listen, I'm chock full of crazy people. I don't need another crazy person. Why are you bringing him to me? And so there's also, you need to know, a superstition about this time that if you kill someone who's crazy, bad things will happen to you. So what the king wants is, get this guy out of here. I don't want him doing something bad. I don't want him getting hurt on my watch. Get him out of town, which is, of course, exactly what David wants. And so he flees. David's plan is successful. David's unbelievably lucky, isn't he? You know, this is kind of like when you watch a movie where the hero is hiding behind a desk or in a closet and some bad guy comes to search the room and you're sure he's going to find him and then all of a sudden out of the blue someone says, quick, come here, we got to go someplace else. And they don't search the room and the good guy says, what luck. Right? Is that what's going on here? Are we to take from this? Is our takeaway... To hope for luck when things get bad? No, I don't think so. But for us to really understand what's going on here, we need to get inside David's head. Too bad we can't. Or can we? Because you see, we know that David authored not one but two psalms at the time of this incident. Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. In Psalm 56, David is speaking while he's in the midst of this danger and trial. And in Psalm 34, he speaks about what he is thankful for to the Lord for delivering him from the trial. David knows he's in a place of desperation and confusion. And what he realizes is it is not his savvy plan that has caused his escape. It's God's work instead. In Psalm 56, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me day for all day long, for many attack me proudly. David is hurt. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. And he is desperate. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my ear, my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? David's saying, I'm in a lot of trouble, Lord. But he also knows he has to put his trust in God. He says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? You see, when you read that psalm and it's abstract, you say to yourself, well, I guess I should be brave and trust God. When you read that psalm and you know David is afraid, his head is going to be cut off right this moment because he's in the enemy's stronghold, 
under attack. It means something else, doesn't it? It's a deeper trust in God. And David puts his trust in the Lord. And as he escapes, he realizes that it is God who has delivered him. He writes in Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. You see, David says that his escape is due to the work of God, not his own planning. Now, what this means is we are to seek the Lord when we are in trouble, when we are even desperate. But it doesn't mean that we should act like fools or that we should act rashly and expect God to always make things right. But it does mean that our foolishness is not what separates us from God. We do not earn God's protection. But His mercies come to both the foolish and the unworthy. Well, the next thing we see is David turn to his only other option. David has escaped, if you'll forgive the cliche, the frying pan and the fire. And now he's got one option left to him. Where will he go? He needs to get out of the presence of Saul. That's what verse 10 tells us. He needs to get away from the face of Saul. And it would seem he's running out of options. And so he goes to the cave of Adullam. And I think the idea here is that David wants to be as insignificant as possible. He wants to stay out of the view of Saul. He wants to stay out of the view of the Philistines. He wants to stay out of the view of everybody. And so he goes to the cave. But his family hears of it, probably because he sends a messenger to them. We can understand why as we continue in our story. And so his family joins him at the cave. And this small detail tells us how David has changed. Because you remember the last time we saw David's family, his brothers looked down on him. They thought he was trying to boast, make big of himself, come to the, the battle site. You remember that. Now he has gone from being a shepherd boy who is looked down on to a mighty man of war. In fact, he is now the leader of his family. He tells them what to do, and they do it. Because David knows his family will not be safe while Saul is after him. As long as David is on the run, his family is potential leverage against him by Saul. You all know how this works, right? Especially the young people. Y'all know there's a reason why superheroes have secret identities, right? Because if everybody knew Peter Parker was Spider-Man, they would do what? They'd go after his family. If everybody knew that Clark Kent was Superman, they would go after the Daily Planet. And so they have a secret identity. Because families can be used, loved ones can be used as leverage against people. And David realizes this. David doesn't have a secret identity. He's already known. So the only thing he could do is get his family out to protect them. But what will David do now? Now, 
at this cave of Adullam, it's more than just one cave. Don't picture an area about maybe five by five with an overhang. This is probably an extension, a series of caves, an area in which many people can be, as we'll see in just a moment, at least 400. But how will David live? What will he do? We could just imagine he's scratching his head. He doesn't know what to do. And once again, we see that God is at work. This time through his remarkable providence. First, we see the immediate work of God. Somehow, word gets out. And word only gets out to those who have been hurt by Saul. Those who are in debt because of the kingdom. Those who are distressed those who are in pain, those who are bitter in soul, the text tells us. Everyone who has something against Saul and them only hear about this. And they begin to flock to David. Instant army. 400 men. Now, God is at work in doing this. God's providence is at work in their hearts bringing them to David. It's not as if this is all one large coincidence. This is a part of the providence of God. God's providence is His work in which He preserves and governs all His creatures and all their actions. So God's providence is over their debts. It's over their bitter hearts. It's over their distress. God is driving them to David. God brings David men to lead. But second, there is a deeper work of God here. What David does is he says to himself, I can't keep my family here in the cave so close to Saul. Where can I go? And the only place he could think of is Moab. Now, Moab has the advantage of being an enemy of Israel and Saul. But as we saw with the Philistines, the problem is, if you're an enemy of Saul, you're probably also an enemy of David. Because David's been the one leading Saul's army. And so, what possible connection could David have that would cause Moab to help? Why would David think to go to Moab? Well, if we stop for a moment and think about the season of time that we are in, Christmas time. In Christmas time, one of the things that we dwell on are genealogies, right? Especially the genealogies of our Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. So if we think for a minute about Jesus' genealogy, which includes David's genealogy, right? Let's think a bit about David. David's father is Jesse. And Jesse's father is Obed. And Obed's father is Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabitess. You see, David's great-grandmother was a Moabite. He's got a family connection. And so that's why he thinks he can get help from Moab. That's actually why he does. He comes in and he says, we're kinfolk. I need you to keep my parents safe. Now, this is a remarkable providence, isn't it? Decades earlier, God is planning this providence for just this moment to keep David's family safe. But think deeper. It's not just that God is the master of time. Think about that providence that set this up. 
Think if you are Naomi and your husband dies and your sons die and there's a famine in the land and you are so miserable you change your name to reflect your misery. And you're Ruth. And your husband dies. And your family dies. And you insist on going back with Naomi to Israel. In the midst of all of that pain and all of that anguish, they just happen to go back to Israel. Ruth just happens to show up in the field of Boaz. And all of that is God's providence at work. And what I want you to see is not just a miraculous set of non-coincidences. What I want you to see is God at work for the good of his people in the middle of pain and misery. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. Perhaps your home flooded. Perhaps your children are running astray. Perhaps your marriage is on the rocks. Perhaps you don't know how you're going to make next month's mortgage payment. But what I can say to you is, God has not forgotten you. You are not outside of His plan. You are not outside of His will. And He is moving His plan forward through your life and through the providence that you are in right now. Now that doesn't make life easier, does it? That's not going to put up sheetrock. But it gives us a place to hold on to when we're afraid, when we're desperate, when we don't know where to go, we've got to hold on to God because that's the only sure place to hold on to. All of these events form the backdrop to the perfect plan of God. What has God prepared for you? Have you thought about that now in this Christmas season? Or are you so wrapped up in the wrappings that you're not looking for God? You see, our focus must be on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the great provision. He is the one who protects us from our own sins. He is the one who was brought to us by the kind providence of God. You see, God is at work in your life. He wants you to see Him. He wants you to trust Him. Because that is the safest and most blessed place to be.